Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in civil conversation. You'll get more of it in After the Fact, a podcast from the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts, pewtrust.org slash after the fact. So we contacted this sociologist, and he was deeply, deeply alarmed, and then finally convinced him to, to meet with us. This is Josh Dunn. He's a professor of political science at the University of Colorado, and he's describing a meeting with a source, another professor actually, for a book he was writing. The sociologist asked Josh Dunn to meet him in a really unusual location, a botanical garden way off campus. It seemed like it was a mile or two from campus. Yeah, it was a safe distance from from where anyone could see us, right? It was the closest, uh, certainly I will ever come to espionage work. So he walks up to us and he's very nervous. We start chatting and he recommends that we walk into the botanical garden. So we walk and kind of keep walking. Then uh, after a while, we, we find a, a safe location or one that he is uh, comfortable with. So we're interviewing him. He's very fidgety. Uh, and then if he hears footsteps, he becomes even more nervous, stops talking. Uh, you can hear this on the recordings of, of the interview where, where the conversation just stops. So what was the reason for the cloak and dagger routine? What's his big secret? Was he some sort of deviant? Actually, he was a conservative professor, and he didn't want anyone to know, except for Josh Dunn and his co-author John Shields, because they were writing a book about the lives of conservative academics. When word got out that we were trying to interview conservative professors, there are many conservative faculty that would exchange emails about our project because they didn't know who we were. And they, they were wondering if we came in peace or if we had hostile intentions. So that some of them described their concerns as the Red Scare in reverse. I'm Arthur Brooks, and this is The Arthur Brooks Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. On this episode, you're going to hear a lot about the lives of conservative professors because we're talking about viewpoint diversity on college campuses. This is an interesting topic, not because we're worried about conservatives per se, but because we're worried about the competition of ideas. When any viewpoint is suppressed, we have a problem. That's like shutting down free elections. That's like getting rid of markets. It leads to monopoly. It brings about mediocrity. Again, this is not about conservatives. It might be, in some cases, conservatives today, but it could be progressives tomorrow. If we want to disagree well, we have to be able to disagree. And the best place to do it is where ideas are supposed to flourish. That's in our academic institutions. And that's what this episode is about today. Let's go back now to our professors, Josh Dunn and John Shields. John Shields is an associate professor of government at Claremont McKenna College. 
They co-authored the primer on conservative representation in the academy, a book called Passing on the Right, Conservative Professors in the Progressive University. They surveyed 153 professors for the book, and I wrote about it for a piece in the New York Times. The book sort of resonated with me because I'm an academic. I spent a lot of my career in academia, and I'm interested in these topics. The book is full of examples of academics leading almost secret lives, like that sociologist we heard about at the beginning of this episode. Here's Josh Dunnigan on how they went about finding conservative faculty to interview. When we would contact many of these faculty, uh, we would get their names. And very often to, to actually find people to interview, we had to use a snowball sample, which is a technique or method that you use to locate uh, difficult to find populations like, like the homeless. And so many of these people were very deeply closeted. Sometimes they would express deep alarm at the fact that we were able to find out that they were conservative and you'd have to talk them back from, from the ledge. Among historians, for instance, many senior historians exchanged emails about our project and were deciding whether or not they, if they would actually give us the names of more junior faculty who were in a more precarious professional position because they didn't have tenure. Now, this is either evidence of psychotic paranoia on the part of conservatives, which is a pretty bad personality trait, or actually evidence of discrimination, your view. Well, the case of the, the sociologist who, who would only meet in the middle of the botanical garden, he had good reason to be concerned. When he interviewed for his position, it was shortly after the election of George Bush in 2004. And then during his interview process at one of the dinners, I believe, one of the faculty members in the department was talking about how the election was a referendum on the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment lost. And so this was a good piece of evidence for him that he should keep his political uh, opinions to himself. Here's John Shields on more of their findings, specifically on where conservative academics are to be found for the most part. Economics is the field that is most friendly to center-right thinkers, and you get somewhat different numbers depending on the survey, but as many as a third of economists self-identify as Republicans. Political science has the next best representation of conservatives. Perhaps as many as 15% of political scientists are conservatives. But then when you get into areas like sociology and history and psychology and literature, in, in all of those fields, you're looking at maybe three, four, five percent of professors are conservatives in those fields. It's really changed over time. I mean, you know, in 1969, the Carnegie Foundation found that 27% of faculty self-identified as conservatives, right? Who knew that 1969 was such a good year for conservatives on college campuses? Uh, by 1999, uh, only 12% of professors self-identify as conservative. So it's been a, there's been a dramatic decline. So what's the cause of this decline? Here's John Shields again. So I think there's a couple different things going on here. I think there is evidence of bias at the individual level uh, when professors are asked uh, whether they would prefer to hire liberals rather than conservatives. A large minority of progressive faculty will say, yes, that we'd prefer to hire liberals rather than conservatives. Indeed, many will say that they prefer to hire Marxists rather than Republicans. Uh, so there is some evidence that there's bias uh, at the point of hiring, and, or at least a strong preference for hiring liberals over conservatives. I mean, it is telling that professors are sort of willing to do this, right? Because usually you have to find, you have to sort of trick people 
into expressing bias in some way, which is why we have, you know, implicit association test and other ways of sort of getting people to admit biases that they don't want to reveal publicly. So at the very least, I think it suggests that there's not a, a stigma against expressing bias against conservatives. Here's something I hear a lot from my progressive friends on campuses. Who cares? Viewpoint diversity might be great, but there are a lot of things that are important, many things that are more important than this. If conservatives don't feel welcome all the time, or we don't have very many of them, why should we be so worried about this? Here's Josh Dunn. It's a lost opportunity. The, the university should be a place where you can model deliberative virtues, tolerance, respect, things like that. But without significant differences of opinion on campus, it's actually difficult to have meaningful and reasonable debates where, where those kinds of virtues can be modeled and taught to students. But then also research. We're supposed to be in the, the business of producing new bodies of knowledge. I think there are several problems when you have such homogeneity on campus for that goal. The, the first would be just the problem of confirmation bias, which is everyone's tendency to accept evidence that supports their pre-existing beliefs and to reject evidence that challenges it. So I think that's that's a problem. But then also important topics end up being just unaddressed by the academy. You think about the progressive era, for instance. There's a kind of standard story about the progressive era, which the, the progressives were good and then those who opposed them were bad, but it's a much more complicated story. So, for instance, the rise of the minimum wage, almost no one addressed this until Thomas Leonard, an economist at Princeton, started studying what the relationship between the, the support for the minimum wage was and the eugenics movement. It turned out that many progressive economists supported the minimum wage precisely because it would put uh, the so-called unfit out of work and then they wouldn't be able to be able to reproduce or afford to be able to reproduce. This is something that was just unknown to most of us and, until one professor started studying it. So here's the question that I have. If viewpoint diversity has been declining for decades, is it possible to turn it around? How do we do it? it it's an extremely hard problem, Arthur, partly because it's very self-perpetuating. I think when progressive ideas become embedded in disciplines, it's going to attract people who share those values. Nonetheless, I think maybe some things could be done at the margins to help. One thing you can do is have uh, conservatives who are visitors. This is what the University of Chicago has done. Uh, they now have a, a visiting professor of conservative thought. So each year they have a prominent conservative come in and they teach courses on, you know, conservative ideas and traditions. And I think that's gone very well. And, and I think folks at the University of Colorado have liked it a lot. I think conservatives who were initially skeptical and felt like, gee, this looks like affirmative action for conservatives. We're not sure if we like it. I think they've softened somewhat too. And I uh, think it's been a good experiment. Now, it's worth pointing out that not everybody thinks this is a problem. And we've just heard from prominent authors who've written a book on this, and they clearly think this is something we should be concerned about. But we need all different points of view on this. After all, this is a show about disagreement. So let's bring in somebody now who thinks that this isn't something we should be so worried about. I'm delighted now to welcome to the show Zach Beecham. Zach is a senior reporter for Vox Media, so he's in the Vox Media family, just like me. Zach is the host of Worldly, which is one of Vox's other podcasts. That's a, that's a 
podcast that covers foreign policy and international relations, and I strongly recommend it to listeners of The Arthur Brooks Show. Now, Zach is a journalist, but he also has a bit of an academic background. He has a master's in science and international relations from the London School of Economics and Political Science. And he's been giving thought to the tenor of discussions on college campuses, on ideological diversity, and on what's going on, the, the subject of this show. Zach, welcome to The Arthur Brooks Show. Hey, Arthur. Uh, I'm happy to be here. And thanks for the super nice shout out to Worldly. Uh, we like to think that your listeners would like us too. Yeah. And people in our world who are interested in foreign policy find it really enriching and, and something that adds to the debate. So congratulations on the success of that show. And thanks for coming on uh, The Arthur Brooks Show to help us sort out a little bit this idea of disagreement on, on campuses. You know, you pay attention a lot to politics and you know that the hot topic right now on college campuses, uh, it, for a lot of people, is free speech. You, you know, college campuses were the epicenter for free speech in the 1960s and 1970s. I have so many friends that came up through Berkeley, and and I've talked to a lot of them since then. And, you know, many of the people who are really old-line progressives, they'll say, today it feels like something different than free speech because we're trying to preclude certain arguments, not just conservative arguments, but all kinds of arguments. How do you see it? Well, my basic view is that it's important to look at the denominator on these issues. And by that, I mean, let's take a look at the number of incidents that one could define as being troubling for free speech on a college campus. And then let's take a look at how many college campuses there are. You know, there's some researchers at Georgetown who are doing that right now. The Georgetown Center for Free Speech, I believe, is the actual name of the institute. And their data found roughly 60 incidents in the past two years that have occurred on college campuses that might be deemed as threatening to free speech, which include everything ranging from a university administrator denouncing a student for their speech at an event to faculty being fired for their views. So that's 60 incidents over the course of two years. And there are well over 4,000 four-year and two-year colleges in the United States. So the denominator is really huge and the numerator is really small, right? So that suggests to me right off the bat that there isn't a lot of evidence that there really is a major challenge being mounted to free speech on college campuses today. So you're looking at this from the point of view of some, as a skeptic, of course, of this, and that's an appropriate thing to do, of course, because when there's a, a conventional viewpoint that's being propagated, it's always good to push back on it a little bit. But why do you suppose it is that so many people are so worried about it? Do you think it's just a fad? Do you think it's unfounded? What do you think is behind the, the, the fretting about this particular topic? So I think that there are two things, um, one of which is not quite a fad in the way that you put it, but a recurring fad or a recurring moral panic. Uh, people always think that there's something wrong with the youth. It doesn't matter which generation it is. There are always covers of magazines, feature stories in newspapers, articles and books being written about how the new generation is going to poison our society and how they're lazy or insert vice here. And it you know, it, it comes every time and it's in a different fashion based on what those people think at that time. So now you have people who are really energized by anti-racist activity and really upset by racist speech. And that is being spun as they hate free speech. And I think the second part of it is people are disconnected from the politics on college campuses. I think it really is the case that universities are not only much more liberal, but much more radical than mainstream society as a whole, where you know you you have debates between liberals and Marxists or 
philosophical liberals and philosophical post-structuralists, and those are the center of gravity of the arguments between faculty. Uh, whereas in the United States as a whole, there's a vanishingly small Marxist movement. Post-structuralism is not a political force, and you have debates between liberals and conservatives, and the poll and the center of the conversation is very different. So if you're looking at this from the outside, you're like, wow, this is really a crazy place where typical debate in the United States is not being tolerated and it's really divorced from our normal conversation. And that that makes people wonder what's going on there and why there aren't more uh, standard ranges of views being expressed on American college campuses. And so you get a sense that free speech is being squelched. Okay. So you're saying that it's true what a lot of conservatives regret about college campuses is that they're they're way, way to the left. They are, in point of fact, way more radical. And so when you listen in on the debates, you think, holy cow, this is this is just way outside the mainstream. So that, that seems to you to be kind of uncontroversial thing to say, right, Zach? Yeah, I, I think that that's indisputable, right? There are various different surveys. I, one number that I saw bandied about was about one-tenth of faculty members are conservative. Yeah, on elite campuses, is probably more like one in 25. What that means is that the center of gravity is so different than American society that a guy like me, I'm, a, I'm an old academic. I mean, once in future guy on college campuses, but I'm sort of center right in my political views. You wouldn't think me radical by American standards. I believe in free enterprise. I think it's a source of good in the world. I think that American leadership militarily has been net net very good for the world. But that in and of itself, given the way college campuses are working, is kind of radically right wing, right? Yeah, I would say, I mean, certainly at the institutions that I've studied at or worked at, not the second view, interestingly, or the first one, actually, and it depends on the department. So in the economics field, for instance, I would find it shocking if anyone dissented from the idea that free enterprise has been good for the world. And I think the majority, based on recent polling I saw, would say that American hegemony or the American liberal order, however you want to define it, has been probably net good for the world. That's why you've seen such a backlash to the Trump administration's foreign policy from uh, from professional scholars for the most part. Now, there's a robust debate over international relations scholars as to whether or not that's true. You know, The case that you just made that US military dominance is good for the world is in fact right, but that's a, that's a real meaningful debate, right? And I think it's an important conversation to be having when I wish honestly we had more in the American mainstream, but I, it would not be controversial to say what you just said in either of the fields that specialize in the two areas you write about. Yeah, and this, I, in, in my view, there's been nothing better for bringing progressives into the fold for American internationalism than the Trump foreign policy in a very real way. It's brought it's brought a lot of people on the left around to my basic point of view, as a matter of fact. And it's paradoxical how those things work, but that's just uh I guess that's just the way it goes. Now I wanna I want to make sure that I'm characterizing your views uh and your views are not just your opinion. This is based on your reading the data. I, I should add that because uh because you've done work on this. You're not saying that the 60 or so cases of the infringement of free speech on college campuses that that it's okay. You're not saying that you're in favor of it. You might very well be against it. You're just saying that it's not as frequent as people think. Is that correct? That's right. I don't have a blanket opinion on every single one of the cases cataloged in that thing. Some of them, when I was looking over the examples, seemed troubling. And there are, I think, real examples of college students going too far, of university administrators reacting in a knee-jerk kind of way. I also think 
there are instances in which you really can justify disinviting somebody. In the case of a provocateur like Milo Yiannopoulos, who never should have been invited in the first place. And I've I've interviewed Milo. Uh, I know him as well as one can know uh, a very alien subject of your of your reporting. Uh, and he is a troll. He's not someone who you would engage with on an intellectual level. And so bringing him to a college campus is a form of provocation rather than an attempt to have a serious intellectual conversation. So I, I don't think that a disinvitation of someone like him is necessarily, might be, but not necessarily a bad idea. It really just depends on the case. So, so is it fair to say that what troubles you is the cases of what is often called these days deplatforming, taking away people's ability to speak on campuses. What troubles you is deplatforming people who are conflated with somebody like Milo Yiannopoulos, somebody who is a provocateur, who's a controversialist, but who's actually a scholar. In other words, to not be able to tell the difference between a controversialist and a scholar who just doesn't happen to be to have conventional uh, academic views. That is is that more troubling to you? That would bother me more. We might disagree on who constitutes uh, that kind of person or who fits that profile. There are some high-profile examples of people that I might take less seriously than you or vice versa, perhaps. But yeah, I think that there can be incidents that are worth being concerned about. I do not think those incidents are concerning enough. And here's where the absolute numbers, the denominator question is really important. Right. I do not think that those numbers are concerning enough that we should say that this is a serious problem for university campuses. That deplatforming is an existential threat to open discourse on campus. I hear you, but there's this one thing that's kind of bugging me still, which is the chilling effect. And, you know, as an academic, I have to say there there really is a chilling effect when you see real scholars who who are, you know, disinvited from giving uh, uh, c- commencement addresses. You know, people like Robert Zellick, who was a, a, an honest-to-goodness, you know, PhD economist, academic, head of the World Bank. He just happens to be a relatively moderate Republican who was, you know, disinvited from college campuses. You know, you see things like that, and it has a chilling effect for even for for people like me. It makes me worry. And are my worries overblown? Am I just being kind of paranoid? I don't know about paranoid. Uh, I can't presume to you know speak about your mental state but i could say i i think that the risks of writing for a conservative magazine or, or publishing journal articles that support some relatively right-leaning conclusions are not that high i mean i i as an undergrad i went to brown which is famously or infamously one of the most liberal college campuses in the united states and some of my favorite professors and that I worked most closely with were conservatives or libertarians, mostly libertarians, I would say. And some of their published articles were, you know, and they reflected their ideology. It is one thing for people to be disinvited from a high-profile platform. And I agree that Robert Zellick should be allowed to speak at a college campus. And I think that that would be student activists going way, way too far, given what I know about his record. But – I don't think there are nearly as many or as high profile examples of scholars being punished for scholarship, right? And in fact, if you look at some of the other data, there have been more liberal professors who have been fired for political speech, according to um, one Canadian academic's study of incidents in the US, than there have been conservative professors. So uh, there might be a problem of free speech, but it's not unidimensionally ideological, right? It's that 
professors get in trouble when they say things that are extreme. So, so let me see if I can characterize your point of view um, concisely for our listeners, because it's different than what a lot of people are saying. Zach Beecham doesn't think that deplatforming is inherently legitimate. On the contrary, it's probably a pretty bad idea in a, pla- a place like a university that's trying to propagate a competition of ideas. But it's not happening as often as people think. And so therefore, we shouldn't be worrying about it nearly as much as we currently are. Is that right, Zach? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I have strong priors on whether it's probably a good idea or probably not a good idea. Again, it's it's just a case-by-case thing. I am studiously neutral on the abstract question of whether or not deplatforming is a good idea because I maintain, as I said earlier, that it's impossible to have an abstract answer to the utility of this tactic. It depends on the speech in question. The thing that I have a firm opinion about, and I believe in all cases, is that this is very rare and it doesn't speak to a major or longstanding crisis on university campuses. Thanks, Zach Beecham. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, I had a lot of fun. Thanks, Arthur. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about our sponsor. We'll be back in a moment. We're back, talking about viewpoint diversity on campus. We're going to talk now to Robert George. He's a conservative professor, an American legal scholar. He's the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. He also runs the James Madison program. Robert George is somebody that I've known for years, actually, somebody I've admired and somebody whose career I've always watched. Delighted to welcome Robbie George. How many years have you been at Princeton? It's hard for me to believe what I'm about to say, but uh, I'm getting very close to 33 years. And just to get this out of the way, you love it there, right? Oh, I do. I feel so blessed uh, to be here. I've I've been supported really in every way uh, by the university. Uh, I've never been a victim of discrimination or any persecution at all. And I know that colleagues at universities and colleges around the country have been victimized uh, for their conservative political beliefs. But I have not. The university has been as generous as it can be. It's showered its honors on me. It's permitted me to teach the courses that I teach in the way I want to teach them. I've never been silenced. I've never been spoken to. I've never been told that I'm out of line. Now, I am the member of a small minority here as a conservative. There's no doubt about that. Although we do have a, we do have a critical mass. I mean, I'm not the only conservative here by any means, but we're a small minority. And yet, we are not, and I'm certainly not, a victim of any sort of persecution. And for that, I'm very grateful to uh, Princeton University. That's great to know. It's uh, it's a little counterintuitive, given what people know about the modern campus, and we're going to be talking about that today. Uh, but before we do that, tell me a little bit about your path. You're you're, you're not. <laughs> suffice it to say that you're not uh, a man from a fifth generation academic family. <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. I'm a hillbilly from West Virginia. I grew up in uh, Appalachia, reared in in West Virginia. I'm first generation college. Um, my grandfathers were coal miners. Immigrants, both immigrants, one from Syria and one from uh, Italy. So I'm first generation. I'm the oldest of uh, five boys. But we're beneficiaries of the American system, products of of the American dream. Uh, Social mobility was possible uh, for us because this is a land of freedom and and opportunity. And that's partly, I think, why I'm a conservative. I want that freedom and that opportunity to be available to everyone. I want every generation of Americans, and especially new Americans, people coming from abroad, to have the liberty and the opportunity that uh, I and members of my family were afforded. 
when did you realize that you were a political conservative? Did you come into Princeton? Were you hired as a as a a known conservative on the FBI watch list, or were you? <laughs> you know, how did that work? Did you have your epiphany when you after you came into academia? I uh, I had an epiphany, but uh, it was really like an adolescent rebellion that began in college uh, when I was an undergraduate at Swarthmore. Uh, of course, being from West Virginia, I. Uh, and being from a mining background, uh, my, my grandfathers were great supporters of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and John Lewis, you know, the uh, mine workers union uh, leader. And they were great supporters of uh, the union. Of course, they were dyed in the wool Democrats. So uh, I always thought of myself when I was growing up in the 60s and early 70s as certainly as a Democrat, but also as a liberal. But it turns out that meant something different in the hills of West Virginia uh, than it meant in the larger world. The Democratic Party was already moving uh, to the left. So when I encountered this in college, I had my adolescent rebellion against it. And the next thing I knew, although it took me quite some time to be able to confess this to myself, the next thing I knew, I was a conservative. Uh, what I believed, which hadn't changed all that much, but what I believed turned out now by the standard reckoning to be conservative uh, rather than liberal. But I, I should say, Arthur, in response to your specific question, that when I arrived in 1985 at Princeton, I was already a conservative, and I was an out-of-the-closet conservative and a vocal and outspoken uh, conservative. People warned me that I shouldn't be, but I don't have the temperament, or that I shouldn't at least reveal that I was a conservative, but I'm afraid I don't have the temperament to uh, keep secrets about things like that. So uh, I came in guns blazing, as it were. So Princeton had every uh, every reason to know what they were hiring and what they had uh, gotten. By then, I was already completely uh, out in the public uh, advocating things that most of my uh, colleagues completely disagreed with. But bravo to Princeton, frankly, for that. Yeah. Do you think that it was easier in 1985 to be hired as a conservative or what do you think how do you think the environment has changed since then liberalism has certainly become more intolerant that's true or progressivism i guess they prefer today to use that term but even at the time i was warned by all my friends and supporters that i was uh, on a kamikaze mission if i continued to uh, be outspoken in my uh, conservatism. And I was across the board. I mean, I was a true Reagan uh, conservative. It wasn't just economic conservatism, which can just about be tolerated in universities or even foreign policy conservatism. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a social conservative. I was then and I am now as well. And, and that is considered completely off limits in the academy. But nevertheless, things, uh, things work out just fine because Princeton uh, people here were really honorable about it. And I have advised my own graduate students and so far very successfully, they have done very well. I've advised my own graduate students not to try to fly in under the radar, not to uh, hide their uh, views. Uh, I think that's bad for people's souls, bad for their character, and it usually doesn't work anyway. <laughs> I mean, they'll figure out the, the intolerant uh, people, the bigoted uh, people, uh, people who can't stand someone dissenting from the prevailing orthodoxy, you're going to figure you out anyway, and they're going to come after you. So uh, I say it's better, and I've told my graduate students that it's better uh, to uh, be who you are, be outspoken about it, defend your positions, uh, challenge other people with your arguments, be willing to listen, of course, and to learn as well as to speak and to teach, but do state your mind and, and, and make your arguments. And I'm very pleased. Uh, with uh, how that has worked out for them. I think I'm giving them good advice. It's hard for them because everything in them uh, says to them, don't 
take this risk. Don't speak out. I just don't think that's uh, the right strategy, nor do I think it's right. So we hear story after story about conservatives being shut down on campuses, people being denied tenure because of their ideological views, not being hired in the first place. We hear these stories a lot. Is, is, are those stories exaggerations? Is, is that really going on? Oh, no, it's going on, but it's not going on everywhere. We need a, a more nuanced understanding of the problem that we're uh, facing. Academia is not monolithic. There are some places where it's simply impossible to survive as someone who dissents from the secular progressive campus orthodoxy. But there are other places like Princeton where one can do very well. And there are lots of places that are sort of in between. So it's a, it's a complicated story and, and the situation is different at, at different uh, institutions. But what I think anyone, whether you're on the left or the right, who's genuinely interested in fundamental academic values, in truth-seeking, in learning, in education as opposed to indoctrination, anyone who's really interested in those things and in those values, whether they're on the left or right, needs to be working together to promote tolerance of competing points of view on campus, and more than just tolerance, the actual promotion of the engagement of competing points of view on campus. And we need to be working for greater viewpoint diversity. There need to be people on campuses representing a broader range of viewpoints so that conformism and groupthink does not settle in. People are afraid to even question uh, the foundations of the normative points of view that are considered uh, orthodox. Uh, so we need to be about the business of, of, of fighting that. And, and I'm uh, associated with an organization that's working on that called Heterodox Academy, led by the wonderful Jonathan Haidt, who's himself not a conservative, the famous NYU uh, psychology professor at the Stern School of Business there. So I think we can have an alliance here of, of old-fashioned liberals and conservatives and, and moderates, the people on the left, people on the right, fighting to restore the academy to its own fundamental mission, truth-seeking, learning, education. Speaking of tolerant discussions, no, beyond tolerant discussions, brotherly discussions in which we can air out all of our disagreements with a sense of solidarity and a sense of solidarity of moral purpose. Uh, you and the famous Cornell West have been working together for, I think, five or six years now where you, you have a traveling roadshow, you do, you lecture together at Princeton University. And, you know, for listeners who don't know Cornell West, Cornell West is a is, a, is an ultra-progressive. He is a, a professor of African-American studies, a distinguished one from Harvard, came to Princeton some years back. I, I think he's going back to Harvard at this point. Um, has views that are on, its, on their face, notwithstanding his deep Christian faith like yours. His views on politics are, are orthogonal to yours. And, and yet, the two of you call each other brother. And, and there's an authentic love that one sees between you when you work together. It, it, it seems to me that this is the model of going from a culture of contempt to one of unity, um, what can bring campuses together that can indeed bring the country together. Can you talk about that? Oh, certainly, Arthur. And thank you for bringing up my, uh, my, my friendship and more than a friendship with uh, my dear brother, uh, Cornell West. We've been working together for 11 years. We began teaching together here at Princeton. Wonderful seminars. Cornell and I have something, in addition to our shared Christian faith, something in common that in a certain sense relativizes the profound differences we have over political uh, issues. And they are quite profound. And that's something that we have in common 
is a dedication to trying to understand the truth about reality. And that means that both of us know that we have to adopt toward each other and more generally an attitude of intellectual humility, a recognition that each of us could be wrong. Uh, we have something to learn from an interlocutor who who disagrees, and so it's that uh, that mutual respect is really built on a on a, on a deep friendship, real love for uh, for each other. I have the greatest greatest uh, admiration for Cornell's integrity, for his his desire to get at the truth, for his willingness to listen to somebody like me who completely disagrees with many of the things uh, he says, and I reciprocate that. Uh, you know, we haven't had these great conversion experiences where one of us persuades the other one over some big uh, issue currently in dispute in politics. But we have certainly deepened each other's understanding by by challenging each other and by by listening to each other. I have to say, Arthur, when I look back at my now almost 33 years, probably the best thing that I have done at Princeton is the work I've done teaching with Cornell. And it's certainly the thing that I have enjoyed uh, enjoyed the most. Do you think that that sincere dialogue between interlocutors who don't see the world in the same way but treat each other with respect and with with dignity? Do you think that that's in decline in America today? Oh, there's no doubt that it's in decline. Uh, but the only way we're going to turn that around is for the grown-ups to model it, and that's what Cornell and I try to do. Uh, and I and I'd like to encourage more people in. Uh, prominent public positions as teachers, as business leaders, as political leaders. We, we really need a lot of people in a lot of areas of professional endeavor uh, to be modeling that willingness to work together. Otherwise, this polarization is going to be the end of us. You, you recall, Arthur, that in the 10th Federalist Paper, James Madison warns that in the end, the, the evil that brings down republics is faction. That's it. Faction is what kills republics. It killed them in the ancient world. It killed them in the medieval world. And it could kill a republic like ours. And we cannot let that happen. This American experiment in republican government and ordered liberty is just too precious uh, to be uh, permitted to fail. On this podcast, we're going to have people listening to it who are at institutions, either they're, they're on the board of trustees of their alma mater or their faculty at institutions or, or, or even better, maybe they're administrators of colleges. And, and they're really worried about the ideological underrepresentation of conservatives of different perspectives on campus. So if you can give people on modern campuses today that may not be as enlightened as Princeton that are struggling under these battles, one or two pieces of advice what what should universities do differently starting today? We need university administrators who, like our president uh, here at Princeton, Christopher Eisgruber, acknowledge and uh, and state openly that freedom of thought and expression is a central, core, non-negotiable value in education. And we need academic leaders, again, like President Eisgruber, who are willing to say that universities need to be places where there is a wide spectrum of views represented. That's the first thing that we need. And boards of trustees choose academic leaders. They certainly choose presidents. Uh, and they have influence uh, with presidents when it comes to other uh, academic uh, appointments. Boards need to make clear that these values really do matter to the board members. And they, they need to make clear to the people who are uh, being employed by them that they expect the leadership of universities to honor these values and take them seriously. 
Uh, something else that I would recommend to uh, people who are involved uh, in university life at all levels, and certainly to uh, members of boards of trustees and administrators, is look for opportunities to build programs like the Madison program here at Princeton, the James Madison program at American Ideals and Institutions, which are focused on trying to ensure a wide spectrum of, uh, of views, a, uh, a really robust debate on campus. Now, they don't – these programs don't have to be focused in the area where the Madison program is. That area happens to be constitutional law and political thought. Uh, it can be sociology. It can be particular areas of sociology, like sociology of the family. Uh, it can be economics. It can be Near Eastern studies. It can be American foreign policy. But I think that institutes and centers in universities that are created precisely to ensure a robust dialogue uh, are part of the solution to the problem that we uh, have at so many universities now uh, with, with, with groupthink, with conformism, with complacency, nobody really around who's challenging the foundational premises of the dominant views on campus. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, the advice that, uh, that I would give. Hmm. You know, when, right before I came up for tenure at Syracuse University, uh, I was starting to write a little bit for the Wall Street Journal, which is always a tell that you might be having subversive thoughts. And uh, I went and gave a guest lecture on a campus. I think it was, I think it was Virginia Tech, as a matter of fact. And some, some students protested and they said, I, because of something I'd written in the Wall Street Journal, which I thought was pretty anodyne, but they didn't. And it, it sent a shiver up my spine. Am I going to get tenure? Is this going to be a problem? So I called my mentor, who is another Harvard professor, James Q. Wilson. Oh, yes. And Jim Wilson had, had been giving me advice since graduate school. He sat in on my dissertation defense, as a matter of fact, which went really poorly, but he didn't abandon <laughs> me. <laughs> he didn't abandon me nonetheless. And, and after this, I called him up and I said, Jim, I just got protested and I'm trying to come up for tenure. And, and I'm afraid that this is going to, I mean, I, I don't know what I'm afraid of, but all I know is I don't want to be controversial. I said, what do you do if you're, I mean, I can't suppress my views. And so I said, what do I do as a conservative on campus? How am I going to prosper? And, and Jim laughed. He was wise and he was a good man. And he said, it's a simple formula <laughs> to be a conservative on campus. You have to be you have to be twice as productive and four times as nice as the liberals. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And, and by the way, if anybody exemplifies twice as productive and four times as nice, it would be Robbie George. And I'm really grateful for your friendship, and I'm really grateful for your work, Robbie. Oh, thank you. Bless you. Thank you, Arthur. Our team at AEI is Cece Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, our producer is Gautam Shrikashan, who also composed our theme music. Golda Arthur is senior producer. And Nishath Kurwa is executive producer of audio. You can email us at arthurbrookshow at voxmedia.com. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whichever podcast app you're using. Find a friend you disagree with. Get them to listen. Get them to subscribe. Hey, listen to the show together. And most of all, Thanks for listening. For 70 years, the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trust has researched the data and the facts that promote civil conversation and lead to innovative policy solutions. Now, it's providing some of that civil dialogue in a podcast called After the Fact. 
In each episode, Pew shares a surprising stat and a story that help illuminate the issues that matter. Listen at pewtrust.org slash after the fact, or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your favorite programs.